Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, how has COVID changed how we work? Have you been traveling to your workplace on a half full bus? Are you wearing full PPE every day? Are you working in a warehouse instead of a shop floor or at your kitchen table on Zoom instead of in your office? It's been over a year, but is there any going back to February 2020 ways of work? The Good Information Project has been examining that exact question over the last four weeks. You'll have probably seen a lot of the resulting journalism on the journal, and we're delighted at The Explainer to dive into it even more to figure out what is in our future. Is remote working here to stay? And how do we as a society fend against the unfairness of one group of people having a lot of flexibility in work and others still following rigid rosters and on-location employment? To answer our questions today, we're joined by the Good Information team of Brian Whelan, Sean Murray and Adam Daly. Thanks so much, guys, for joining us. And Brian, I'm going to start with you. Can you just recap what the Good Information Project is and its aims? The Good Information Project, I guess, is a chance for us to engage with the audience around big issues, big ideas, find out what people already know and then ask them what they want to know, find information they need and engage in a bit of a dialogue that gets away from the daily news cycle and like really deep dives on topics. So we do 15 one-month cycles and produce articles, videos, uh, webinars, panel discussions, things like that. And what's the feedback from readers like involved in this discussion? Has anything surprised you about what our work futures are going to be like? So it's quite distinct the way people are getting in touch this month relative to last month when we talked about the idea of a shared island. Uh, it's fair to say that people are venting more than asking questions. They're sort of just describing their conditions. And I think a universal thing is that people are pretty frustrated if they're still going to work or if they're working remotely. Um, even the people who are happy about not having to commute anymore still miss a change of environment. And I think people don't quite have the language to describe why they're unhappy. Like if you're working remotely, and you still have your job, you should be happy. But there's a sort of underlying tension that people are expressing in their messages. And that's quite interesting. And we'll get into that with Sean and Adam later. But just let's look ahead. What's next for the Good Information Project? What's the next cycle going to be about? So next month, we're going to be talking all about China, trying to figure out our relationship to China, find out what the audience knows about China, what the audience wants to know about China, um, maybe have some discussions around even today, China dominates the headlines with the tensions with Taiwan, uh, their space program, the amount of influence they're building with smaller nations through their Sinopharm vaccine program. And then it's obviously things like democracy and human rights that will definitely need to be unpacked. Cool. Sounds like a good and complex one. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. And as I said, we're going to go back to, to Sean and Adam now to talk about exactly what they've been finding out over the last four weeks about our ways of work. And I say this from my home um, and underneath the blanket that I do the explainer from in lieu of having a podcast studio. Sean, obviously, a lot of us are working from home. Why is that? Well, like the, the advice has been, always has been, remains uh, work from home if you can. Like the like, the first thing to say is that like the restrictions have changed so much in the last fourteen months. We've been in a lockdown. We've been out of lockdown. We even had the latest restrictions kind of announcement last week. But like the the work from at home advice has never changed, and it hasn't changed for over like four hundred days now. And like the rationale for that is kind of clear enough. Like office workers do make up like a large proportion of workers in our towns and cities, and if they literally have to go to the office, it means commuting on public transport in huge numbers. It means packing into offices where air circulates. 
um, and then you could go home. And if you've caught the virus in the office, you could bring it to your home along with the other 50 employees in your office or, or whatever the case may be. So like by working from home, you reduce your daily contacts. There's less chance of you getting the disease and making others sick. And like the important point to stress is that many of us can work from home. As Brian said, a lot of us might not like it, but while we can, we should. And that's the, the medical advice. At a recent NEFA briefing, Deputy Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Ronan Glynn, like he made it clear it would be some time before this position has changed. He said that like they're still asking employers to facilitate employees and not attending unless it really is essential. He said that if there was a significant return to work, it could have a significant impact on the disease. It's clear that it's going to be a, a, like many months before where there's any kind of wholesale return to work. And like um, Dr. Glenn said that they probably it's like going to be June or July before they even look at that again. Sean, what are we waiting to happen? What has the government indicated will be the timeline for heading back to the office? I think like the government is definitely uh, pinning its its hopes on the vaccine in so many ways when it comes to reopening society. And I think when it comes to offices, that's no different. Um, at the announcement last week, uh, Tonish de Leverarca was asked about this and he said, like, realistically, it's unlikely that we'll be returning to offices until September. And he said that'll be when a, a critical mass of people are vaccinated. And he also talked about a phased return to offices. So that's something that will have to be teased out a lot, I think, in the coming months. Like, what does a phased return to offices look like? But then, like, as we know, COVID can make fools of our plans and has done so on numerous occasions. So I think when he's when he's saying September, that's probably a bit of guesswork on his part and probably based on a, a kind of best case scenario. Sean, let's talk numbers. A lot of people anecdotally have said, you know, even if the government let me back into the office, I want to stay remote working. Do we know what that breakdown could be of those people who do want to stay remote working rather than head back to the office? It's something that we don't have clear kind of indications on yet, but it's something that HR departments like up and down the country are currently working on. And we know from the CSO stats that roughly around half of us had our work situation changed by COVID. So obviously the, the move to remote work affected hundreds of thousands of workers. Another thing we do know is that there's a clear preference for many workers to retain remote working in some form in the future. Um, I know NUI Galway has been, been doing a lot of research on this over the over the last few months. And their recent survey found that like of the people who are remote working, over four in five of them want to retain that in some form. And like when you say some form, like the kind of clear preference is a kind of the hybrid model we've been hearing about a lot. So the hybrid model would involve you being at home or remote working for a few days and then going into the office for a few days as well. So that that, that mix during the week. Um, it very much depends on like the individual company and sector you're working in, though. Like anecdotally, we're hearing that firms and maybe finance and accounting and solicitors, some but not all, they're itching to get back into the office. And then you have uh, like some are going the complete other way, signaling just how remote they're going. Like Liberty Insurance are one company who are adopting a remote force model in future. I know companies like Revolut and Microsoft, they're going to be offering that hybrid that we talked about. But then the thing to remember is like there's just so much uncertainty. Like companies and workers were literally kind of flung into this overnight. There was very little planning that could be done beforehand. As we know, COVID just kind of arrived and then everything changed. But it's kind of the reverse now. They have months and months to kind of plan for how they will do the return to offices when it's safe to do so. Like, as I said, HR departments are working on that now, but it's still not clear when that advice will come through. Yeah, I'll be getting out of this house as quickly as possible and back into the office. But I know I'm definitely not at the norm in that. Is working from home now, though, because we're working through a pandemic, very different to say if someone had asked their employer three years ago, can I start working remotely? 
Yeah, it, it, I, I would say it's completely different. That's one thing that kind of has really opened my eyes uh, during the research for this topic. Like homeworking was quite a niche practice before the pandemic. Um, stats from Europe and the ERSI kind of tell us that around one in nine people work from home some of the time before COVID. So that's obviously a very like, low, per, low proportion of workers. And I think companies in general were quite reticent to it. But like I've spoken to some of these people who were remote working before this, and like they've stressed upon me just how different it is now to the way remote working was before. And it kind of it kind of fills me with a bit of hope for the future, because like I'm like yourself, I I, I want to get back to the office as well as quickly as possible, because there's some aspects of remote work that I just don't like at all. But it, it I, I think it's important to try disassociate what remote working is for you now, when all the bad things are happening to us. Like I found it like tough at various stages working from home. Things get on top of you. It's hard to switch off, etc. But like while remote working could be a factor and why you might be feeling burnt out or why you might be feeling like work is getting too much, like it's not just that. It's it's also like it's the five kilometer rule. It's the the not seeing your friends and family. It's the shops being closed, the cinemas, the restaurants, the pubs. Like all of that is adding up to to how we're feeling right now. Like. If the only thing you have left is work, obviously you'll feel that that's that's the thing that's getting on top of you. But it's it's all these other things. So I think that like hopefully when we get that normality back, like you could have a remote working day where you go to a friend's house who might live nearby. They might have a different job from you, but like if they have good broadband, you could sit down together and you could do your work day, and that's a completely different experience afterwards. When you finish your shift, you could go meet a, another friend for a meal or a film or just for a pint. Like you won't have that horrible commute in the morning. You can put your head down and get the work done. And like that's not even approaching how much handier it could be for parents who require a lot of flexibility as well. So like that's that's really what I'd say to people. Like uh, like I found it hard too, but like I think there is a bit of light at the end of that tunnel. Like if you don't like working from home now, that's not to say you won't dislike it in the future. Adam, I'm going to turn to you because one element that I want to discuss with you is that many people feel when they're working from home, they're actually working more hours. And that might be because of their expectation from bosses that they're always contactable. You know, it's a pandemic. There's very few places that we can go and we're working from home. But also there's no physical cutoff point to the end of the day. You know, an office doesn't shut down around you. People don't leave. You're not saying goodbye to other people. So you can get caught in a rut of just staying at the laptop or staying at the desk. The government have announced a right to disconnect. They did that in April this year. Can you tell us what it is and what should employees know about it? Yeah, well, essentially, it's an attempt to stamp out the kind of always on culture, which has become more commonplace, um, I think, in recent years, mostly thanks to technology. And then obviously, there's the aspect of the pandemic most recently, where people kind of feel that they have to be seen to be working because they're not used to working in remote settings. But practically, um, it means being able to switch off from work outside of your normal working hours and not having to respond immediately to emails, telephone calls and other messages. But I think the the first thing that employees should keep in mind is that it's not exactly a legal right, um, as the phrase might suggest, but rather it's a code of conduct. And the code of conduct itself was developed by the Workplace Relations Commission. The whole point of it is to be able to provide a practical guide and best practice for employers and employees. Um, So the aim is really to create a workplace culture in which employees feel they can disconnect from work and work-related devices without the fear of repercussion. Um, And the workplace relation uh, does provide a template for companies uh, putting their code together. And kind of the caveat for each is that it has to contain, I suppose, the three main elements, which are an employee's right to not routinely perform outside of normal working hours, the right not to be penalized for refusing to attend work matters outside of those hours, 
and the duty to respect another person's right to disconnect. So that's kind of where the employee's um, responsibility falls into that. Yeah, Adam, surely there are laws, though, that stop people from being overworked by their companies or their employers. Yeah, so um, as I mentioned before, the government did opt um, not to draft legislation on in this area. Their um, frame of mind was that there was a balance to be struck there and they opted for the creation of a code of conduct instead. And that means that if an employee feels their workplace is not adhering to the code, they can take the case to the Workplace Relations Commission. Um, and the debate around legislation um, has come up from opposition parties. Labour and Sinn Féin are among those saying that the right to disconnect should be enshrined in laws in order for it to be effective. But as you mentioned, um, and legal experts that I've um, spoken to have pointed out that the right to disconnect has sort of existed in our laws for many years already. So, for example, the Organisation of Working Time Act from 1997 sets out employees' statutory and minimum entitlement for the working week, annual leave, breaks and rest periods. However, there are some practical gaps from that perspective um, when we're thinking of it in the context of a digital right to disconnect, given that the 1997 Act um, definitely couldn't have foreseen the, uh, I suppose, diverse technological work environment that we all, I suppose, enjoy at the moment. So whether the choice not to legislate uh, will come back to bite the government, I think will uh, remains to be seen. Yeah, actually, imagine if you're working for a company that doesn't really respect your time and thinks that you should respond to emails at half ten at night, then maybe a code of conduct isn't going to be the best uh, way to, to deal with them. Um, thanks for all that detail, Adam. It's really interesting. Sean, one of the pieces that you um, wrote over the Good Information Project cycle this time was uh, really fascinating around the impact working from home has had with people with disabilities. Can you tell our listeners like kind of the breakdown between what's positive and what's negative uh, about their experiences like uh, I, I think it's been overall positive but it does come with a couple of caveats like I think like for someone just just imagining what what remote working could offer for people with disabilities you you would like automatically assume oh great um if they can work from home that eliminates a lot of the barriers that they might face but there's some some kind of issues there as well like over the years advocates have like repeatedly highlighted these barriers that are facing people with disabilities from entering the world of work and even in this new normal that we're going to be heading into, like some of these barriers do remain and will need to be overcome. Like uh, people with disabilities that I've spoke to have raised concerns that like now the option is there for remote working. And while that's great for them in so many ways, they may feel a bit more isolated if they're made to work from home rather than workplaces being made accessible for them. From the data that we have from Census 2016, 22% of people with a disability in Ireland were at work compared to 53% of the overall population. That's a massive difference. Like in, in this new normal, it'll likely feature a mixture of remote working and working in the office in many sectors, that hybrid that we're talking about. But people with disabilities and their advocates are clear. Like this new world of work offers them new opportunities to excel, but essential support such as transport and accessibility are needed to ensure that they can't be left behind. They don't want to be isolated. Like a workplace might feel that it's more economically viable for them if they have workers with disabilities to have them work from home rather than like spending money to put in the supports and that are needed to make an office more accessible. But people with disabilities don't want that. They want the same kind of social aspect of work. They want the same work-life balance. And if they can't get public transport to work or if they can't have a, for wheelchair users, for example, if, if, if a workplace isn't wheelchair user-friendly, then like that won't work for them. They need something that can overcome those barriers and they really need 
like while remote working offers loads of opportunities, they need to be make sure that they don't get left behind by this. Yeah, so the flexibility needs to go both ways. It can't be just like, oh, well, we allow remote work now, so away you go. Um, one of the other things that people have talked about, and obviously it hasn't been able to happen during the pandemic because we've mostly been stuck within our 5K or definitely within our county, but people have talked about working from home, not being working from home, but being working from anywhere. So people have looked at, you know, could this be a way to get me out of a crowded city or away from a long commute and, and move completely out of your city or, or your suburban town to, to more rural areas, to the coast? Is that going to happen? I think it's something that a lot of people are looking at at the minute and it's something that a lot of people are considering. Like some have made some have made the plunge, but like so many more people are saying, "Oh, is this a viable option for me?" And I think like from conversations I've had with surveyors and estate agents, they're saying it is the thing that, that that's on people's minds. Like uh, one estate agent I spoke to in Longford, he said that they had a house go up just before Christmas in a kind of attractive enough area near the town, and like immediately there were eleven applicants, and ten of them had indicated that they wanted to use like to do remote working from that home in future. That was one of the reasons they were looking at that home. So, and another Amid said to me that, like, usually when you were trying to sell a, a rural dwelling, you'd ask the current owners, what's the story with the well or the septic tank? And now the first question they ask is, what's the story with the broadband? Because if, if that place has broadband, you'll have the remote workers interested. And if you don't, it's, it's going to be unlikely that you'll sell that house because that move, that demand at the minute is for people who are working from home, anticipate that will be like that in the future. That's the kind of areas that they're looking at. Another aspect then that they're saying to me is that like in places like Longford and places that are like kind of outside of commuting distance of Dublin for doing it regularly. um, A lot of the people who are looking at properties have family ties to the area or have some links. So like uh, I can imagine that maybe you moved to Dublin for college and maybe you got a job straight out of university. Maybe your partner is also from that area. That place is a lot more attractive now. You might want to move home to be closer to family. And if you can have you, if you can do your same job from that area, that's that's something that's attractive. Like um, that same uh, estate agent in Longford, he told me about a couple who were had put a deposit down on a house in the North Wall in Dublin in February 2020. And obviously everything that happened, <laughs> happened. And they kind of said, oh no, actually we're both remote working now. Wouldn't it, would it not be better for us to move home because there's so much bang for our book, essentially back home. Like they were looking at like a kind of, I think it was a two bed townhouse uh, in Dublin city. And then they, we're getting a 2,500 square foot house in Longford instead where they could, where they could remote work. And there was all those kind of family ties there as well. So I think like, it's a thing that people are definitely going to be looking at. We have like housing is a massive issue at the moment that we're hearing about this week. We know the issues around supply are huge and we know the issues around demand are huge. So I think it's something that people are looking at, but we're going to have to wait a while to see if it's a, it's a if it's a definite trend. Yeah, it is something though the government are talking about as well, Adam. Right? What is their scheme to encourage people out of cities? Yeah, well, the government plan at the moment it's um, aptly called uh, our rural future. Um, emphasis on future there because it features 150 commitments that are set to run from. 2021 to 2025 and these range from relocation grants to tax breaks and they're all devised to lure workers from cities into rural towns um, and I know the word commitment doesn't inspire much hope um, and a lot of aspects of the scheme are quite vague but looking at the plan itself 
among the proposals are plans to promote work uh, remote working and to uh, increase the number of people living in rural areas that's kind of the crux of it um, and proposals in budget 2022 could even see new financial supports to encourage people to live in rural areas and um, this will also include plans to see an increase in public sector workers doing their job from rural areas with pilot co-working and hot desking hubs for public servants in a number of rural towns um, and the plan for an increase in remote working includes plans to develop a network of over 400 remote working facilities throughout the country. So there's a lot of um, big plans involved, but uh, these proposals are all underpinned by the continued rollout of the National Broadband Plan, with the strategy noting that the government will um, explore how the broadband plan can be accelerated to deliver connectivity as soon as possible to these rural areas. So there's there's that big issue of whether um, broadband will be accessible in the places that um, they're hoping to to lure people to, essentially. Adam, there has been other schemes before, though, to decentralise, right? Yeah, and I I think the most recent one was the Action Plan for Rural Development that was launched um, four years ago. And I think the success of this plan uh, will ultimately be judged on how quickly um, it's implemented um, and whether they invest in other things that will incentivize people to move to rural Ireland. Most notably, transport infrastructure is in dire need of an update. Um, if you're thinking of moving from an urban setting that has access to um, public transport and you don't drive, you won't even dream about moving to another part of the country because it's kind of not an option for you. So um, so these plans for um, increased housing and more workspaces are definitely welcome, but um, major investments are going to be needed in infrastructure and amenities to make these places more appealing as a place to live rather than a workplace destination. Yeah, we've talked a lot about people who have these options, people generally like us who work in offices. But Sean, what is the experience of those who've simply never worked from home during the pandemic been like? Yeah, I think it's like... it it create, kind of creates fears that there could be like a kind of two-tier approach to work in future. Like on the one hand, you have people whose jobs offer this the kind of new flexibility and the tantalizing promises of like a work-life balance, unlike what they had before. But like, as you said, there's large swathes of the workforce that cannot look forward to this newfound flexibility, at least not yet. Like so many jobs still require you to be on site. Like factory workers, they can't do their job remotely. Delivery drivers, they can't work from a laptop in their bedroom. Like most hospitality workers can't have a hybrid model where they're three days and work and two days at home. Like I think there's certainly a recognition that workers on the front lines of the pandemic have made like enormous sacrifices, like unions and politicians have been calling for like some proper acknowledgement of this. But like there are fears among these workers from the ones I've talked to that little will change for them in this new kind of flexible world of work. Like and as a result, there are also fears that it would be difficult to retain people in such industries if they have the option for like a much better work-life balance in a traditionally office-based setting, you know? Um, I think there are fears, like there's, as one warehouse manager who I spoke to, he put it to me, he's like, he's, he fears that a gulf will open up between those on the front line who've been putting themselves at risk during COVID as well, and those at home behind a computer. That section of workers in some of the jobs that have never stopped, they often earn little money and they have little job security. So as one person put it to me yesterday, it's we like for the office workers who are getting this newfound flexibility, there needs to be a sense of solidarity with these other workers who aren't getting that flexibility, we can't just say, oh, isn't this great for me? Like I have this, I can work from home two days a week and do that um, go in the office three days a week. Like that, that won't work like, for, for everybody. So we need to have this sense of solidarity. We need to have, we need to put in support for these people. And we need to kind of like unions, especially will need to lead the charge and kind of demand. Like we need more flexible work for these people too, because they can't be left behind, especially after the, the sacrifices they've made during the pandemic. 
yeah, one of the things that I'd worry about is as office workers get this kind of hyper flexibility, we're asking, we're going to be asking for even more rigidness from the service industry. Like if we are working from anywhere, will we be expected, will we expect to be able to get lunch delivered anywhere rather than within the confines of a smaller city, those kind of things. Um, Adam, you have spoken to a number of people who have never worked in an office or haven't during the pandemic. What, if anything, has changed for those workers? Yeah, I think they've definitely seen little change in the last year, but um, the pandemic has definitely served them in highlighting the the issues that they're facing. And these are definitely not pandemic-induced issues. Um, they were around long before them, like taking the, the gig economy, for example, and food delivery riders, they've been calling for change um, over the past few years. And now in the pandemic, they're a vital part of many business models, but still face the same job insecurity around visas and they have major safety issues operating in the city. So there's definitely um, a lot of work to be done and particularly around delivery riders and many of them have started to unionize with the likes of uh, SIP2 and Unite. So I think they're hoping that I suppose the work that they've been doing during the pandemic that hasn't gone unnoticed will serve them well in bringing about these changes. But um, as you mentioned, I spoke to some um, riders for delivery recently and I suppose the overarching issue that came up among them individually was the sense that they're not being valued and that crops up across a number of aspects of their work. And that's from their working rights that they have. A lot of writers are inter- international and, and students and um, their wages, the relationship with management of delivery that they have and also their relationship with the public. Um, and uh, in the clip we're about to play, um, Gabriel, a writer who's studying English and computing, uh, tells me about some of the issues that he faces on a daily basis. Uh, so I'm trying to work at least 30 hours because otherwise I cannot pay the amount that I need per month. My college is, I mean, the studies here, the life here in, in general is expensive. So we have to work, I mean, harder. I avoid certain areas to deliver now. Before, well, when I was new, nobody, nobody told me, you don't go to this area, don't go to this hood, don't go there after this hour. I learned this because I was attacked twice, and my bike has been stolen twice as well. I work now with an electric bike account, electric bike, sorry. And before I used to work with a normal bike. At the end of the week, I was wrecked, you know, like if I just straight my body, my legs were with cramps, and it was very painful. As well, I lost weight. I lost like five or six kilograms since I arrived. So. It is hard and well demands as well a lot of energy. You can you have to eat more, you have to rest properly. Otherwise, you cannot do this job. Like, and that was a delivery driver there. And there's a full clip with um, that interview as well as another person who has very much changed their way of working during the pandemic. Available on the Good Information Project on the Journal. Sean, one issue that has kind of always been bubbling away when we talk about the future of work, pandemic or not, has been a four day week. Has this come up as part of your research? How likely are we to, in our lifetime, see a four-day week rather than a five-day one? Like in terms of the government here, there seems to be very little appetite at looking at trialing a four-day work week, like what they're planning to do in Spain. So in recent months in Spain, they've been looking at a scheme where they'll give companies direct funding to cover the costs of implementing a four-day work week, just to kind of see how it goes and see if it works for them. Like now in Ireland, there's been like a kind of disparate group of unions and different groups pushing for the four day work week as hard as they can here for a little while. At the forefront of this is a company called Ice Group. 
they're a group of recruiters and they got a lot of press uh, in recent years for implementing a four-day work week. They say what all proponents of the idea say. They say it boosts productivity. It creates a better work-life balance. It keeps workers happier. They say they get the job done like in the four days rather than the five. They get just as much done, maybe even more. And also they get more days off. And like for a lot of people, like the idea of a four-day work week, just what's not to like about it for, for from the worker's perspective. But employers haven't been swayed en masse to give it a go yet. Like the, the five-day work week has been here for over 100 years, etc. And like the companies are unwilling to let it go. And the government here isn't throwing its weight behind it yet. Like if uh, when it comes up in parliamentary questions, the government says, oh, it will cost billions, etc. They don't seem to be fans of it as of yet. So in Ireland, it'll need to be the private sector that needs to step up in this regard. So that'll be one to watch. As I said, it could be a fertile ground caused by the crisis to for this kind of change. Um, another one that's kind of gathering momentum, and this could actually happen, is a, a universal basic income. So the idea behind a universal basic income is to give every citizen within a defined group a regular payment regardless of their circumstances. So there'll be no means test or a requirement to work. You're just basically given a flat payment. So uh, supporters of this idea said it should be enough to live a frugal but decent life without additional income. Detractors would often obviously point to the high cost to the state of such a system and they, as well as fears that it could disincentivize work. But in the program for government, the commitment was made to implement a pilot project. And obviously the pandemic has caused uh, kind of, as I, as I keep saying, the fertile ground to trial this. So what the Department of Arts is looking at is bringing in a universal basic income for people in the arts who've obviously been out of work for the pandemic. What they propose is to give people a weekly payment of 325 euro because like people who, who like gigging musicians, um, actors, artists, they've all been like had their income fall off, uh, fall off a cliff during the pandemic. So if this is another kind of big idea around work and it's something that the Minister for uh, Culture, Catherine Martin, said she supports. So that will be an interesting one to see if that's brought in here in the future and see if it works. Yeah, that trial is definitely something we'll be keeping a really close eye on because it will probably bring up some fascinating data. Thank you, Sean and Adam and Brian for coming in and explaining all of the brilliant work you've been doing with the Good Information Project over the last month. And if people want to see all the videos and articles that we've been referring to, just go onto the journal's homepage and click onto the tab which says the Good Information Project and you'll find it all there. Again, thank you so much, guys, for coming into the explainer. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Brian, Sean and Adam for joining us. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Aoife Barry and Nikki Ryan. The Good Information Project is co-funded by Journal Media and a grant programme from the European Parliament. The European Parliament has no involvement in the editorial content. If you want to support The Explainer, there's a few things you can do. Head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber. You can also leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's a great way to make sure other people discover, listen and love it too. Thank you and catch you next time.